Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. And uh, this is the Ethics in Action podcast from UMass Boston. And my guest today is my friend and colleague, Adam Beresford. Hi, Adam. Hi. Adam is a uh, scholar of um, uh, uh, ancient Greek philosophy. He's just published a wonderful translation of uh, Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean Ethics. And actually today, we are going to do something different from uh, what uh, we usually do in this podcast. Uh, and I'm hoping that this is the beginning of a series uh, of this, of these. Um, and uh, we're essentially going to uh, have Adam uh, choose and talk about a uh, passage, a piece of uh, text that has meant uh, a lot to him. I guess we'll call this uh, series uh, with great originality, my favorite passage or passages. Uh, so Adam, you uh, wanted to talk about book 24 of the Iliad. So why don't you uh, set that up for us? What's going on there? And uh, why uh, do you particularly like it? Sure. So um, book 24 is the part of the Iliad well, firstly, it's the final book of the Iliad. So it's, it's the conclusion, it kind of wraps everything up. And uh, it's the book in which King Priam goes to Achilles, who is the, you know, the preeminent warrior of the Greeks. In other words, he goes and visits like his number one military enemy to ask him for the body of his son, Hector. So in the previous books, this is the drama that's played out basically over the rest of the poem. In the previous books, um, Achilles has killed Hector because Hector had previously killed Achilles' closest friend, Patroclus. So Achilles uh, f kind of flies into an extreme rage, right? And he takes vengeance by killing Hector and he kills him in incredibly brutally. He, he defeats him in single combat in front of the walls of Troy. Then he ties his body to the back of his chariot and drags it around the walls of Troy in front of his parents who are watching from the walls. And then he takes it back to the Greek camp. And that's not enough. We're then told that he gets up every morning and drags it around the tomb of Patroclus over and over again, you know, for, I don't know, like half an hour every morning because he's still so furious about the death of his friend and about the fact that Hector has killed him. So in that setting, book 24 starts and the gods are talking about how maybe Achilles is going a bit far. You know, maybe he's, this, this rage is too much and he needs to calm down a bit. And the gods agree that they should maybe try to get the body back. And so they, they encourage King, by way of, you know, messengers, they encourage Priam to go and ask for his son's body back. So the, the plan is kind of insane. Like this old, weak, physically weak king is going to go on his own across the plains of Troy into the Greek camp, into Achilles's tent, you know, the, the kind of a headquarters of this, the, the Greeks greatest warrior, this enraged man, and ask for Hector's body back. And of course, everyone thinks it's completely crazy. His wife thinks it's crazy. There's a, there's a lovely scene where he, he asks his wife, he says, you think I should do this? Uh, and she says, no, you're completely crazy. That's ridiculous. He'll kill you as soon as he sets eyes on you. We have to just stay here. It's actually a beautiful scene as well. It's also one of my favorite passages. Homer is um, very, very good at drawing female characters. It's one of his uh, one of his great strengths. It's a, it's a strength, I think, of any really good writer, but especially perhaps writers of times where women tend to be neglected. It's a sign of a good writer that they have strong female characters, and Homer is is one of those people. A bit like Shakespeare, um, you know, some really famous strong female characters at Hecuba, uh, Penelope in the Odyssey, Helen, and so on. 
Anyway, so Priam goes on with this plan in spite of Hecuba telling him it's crazy. He gets a bit of help from the gods. Um, Hermes comes down in disguise and kind of in uh, disguise as a young Greek man, just you know, helps him get across the plain and helps him get into the camp. Right. So then he just walks all on his own straight into Achilles's tent. And before anyone really has even noticed him and can see what's going on, he's on the ground in front of Achilles, grabs hold of his knees, which is the standard ancient Greek way of, of making a kind of supplication and an appeal. And, and he, he makes this request for, for the body of Hector. And he does it by trying to arouse Achilles's kind of empathy. He gets Achilles to think about his own father. He, he says to him, think about your own father, who's probably a little bit like me at this point, about my age, similar, all on his own back in, you know, back in Greece. Um, and he succeeds. He succeeds in arousing Achilles's empathy in spite of all the rage up to that point. And so they have this little conversation. Basically, it's like a little conversation about human suffering and about their common suffering. And it's a kind of moment of release because you can see that Achilles, somehow or other, this extraordinary gesture on the part of Priam has yeah. broken Achilles' rage. It's yeah. like finally broken. It's not just the rage he's been feeling against Hector and Hector's body, but it's kind of the rage that's occupied the entire poem. Achilles being angry about something or other for the entire poem, right? right. right? And, that, and now it, fin it finally breaks and he turns into something just at least a little bit different, at least just for a moment yeah. in, this, in, this, in this scene where the two of them, the, the, the king of Troy and the preeminent warrior of the Greeks, these, these determined enemies, who of course are gonna go back to fighting each other like the next day, at least for a moment, kind of have this kind of sense of, of, the, of their common suffering. So that's the passage I wanted us to look at. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that, so I think it's just a wonderful passage in its own right, right? A kind of wonderful insight into, into, into things like, well, reconciliation, forgiveness, or at least, at least it touches on ideas of forgiveness and, and, and anger and, and things like forbearance and, you know, ideas like that. Yeah. It, yeah. I was thinking, Sorry, about, it, it, in fairness, Achilles also gets a, a heads up from uh, from the gods and specifically from that's uh, true, yeah. From from his mother, from his mother, uh, yeah, yeah. That prime uh, that prime is coming, um, and so he's sort of, you know, he's expecting it uh, at some level, but it's not clear that he's expecting to uh, feel the uh, the sort of fellow feeling that you just described. He's not, it's not clear that he's ready to sort of have those uh, uh, remembrances of his own father uh, uh, stirred up. And it's interesting because you say that, you know, you're right, the whole poem is about uh, rage. It begins about, you know, it begins with the words rage. Um, but then at the end of this passage that you're talking about, he's like, um, when, they, when they're crying together, he and, he and the old king, it's almost like they needed a good cry. Exactly. <laughs> and and yeah. it says, then when brilliant Achilles had his fill of tears and the longing for it had left his mind and body, he rose from his seat. But it, it's yeah. a striking thought that you can have a longing uh, for tears. And oh, I know that, yeah, it's a, it's a totally Homeric thing. Yeah. He, he describes grief as something you can have a kind of appetite for. Yeah. Right. Or he describes like maybe outpourings of grief as something you have a kind of appetite for. So you need you need to have that cry. You need to do the weeping. Yeah. And then, you know, then you'll feel, as it were, sated and you can kind of go back to normal. But you have to go through that process. Right. right? right. He describes Prime in the same way. He says Prime says, I think. Look, I don't even care if Achilles is going to kill me. If I can just hold Hector's body in my arms and kind of relieve my longing for grief, mm -hmm. then he can kill me right away because that's yeah. fine. I'll be sated. I'll be satisfied. Um, that's a distinctive Homeric way of thinking about grief. And actually, I think it makes sense, right? I mean, the expression you just used, have a good cry, of course, yeah. is, a, is an entirely modern idiom. Yeah. 
but but that's the same idea. And yeah. it shows that we it shows that we still have that Homeric idea. Yeah, and the that weeping is something that you can sate your appetite for. Yeah, you can have an appetite for it that it can be that you can have a good cry. Uh, right. So so do you want to read to us at least the the beginning part of that passage or the part that you want to? The... Yeah, let's take a look. So <clears throat> I've got oh. You, Nia, you're going to have to let me screen share. Oh, unless you, unless you, unless we just do it. Um, you can, you, we can just, we, we can just read it out. And, we'll just read it. Okay. This is, this is. Uh, in, so I, I was going to read from about, I'm sorry, go ahead. I interrupted. Uh, it was book 24, but I wasn't sure which line you're going to read. Yeah, from. I was going to read from about line 519. Right. Right. Okay. So at least there's a little bit of Achilles. Yeah. And then that will take us through to this kind of um, little homily about the nature of life that he gives about Zeus and his and, and his two jars, which is kind of at the heart of the passage. Mm -hmm. And then that's that's a, a that's a set of lines that gets discussed by later Greek philosophers, uh, Plato in particular. And so passing directly by Aristotle, so I wanted to talk about that as well. All right, so let's start at about five nineteen. So, so um, this is where this is before uh, the part where uh, Priam uh, falls at Achilles's. No, Priam has just arrived and he's okay. fallen on his feet and he's already made his appeal. He said, okay. "Achilles, think of your father. He's like me. He's got no one to look after him, no one to protect him because you're over here." He's utterly wretched, although at least he has one son left, not like me. My children are all dead. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. And, and then he asked for the body of Hector back. This is how Achilles replies at about 519. I think you mean 619. Is that possible? Um, I don't think so. Okay. Let's just do uh, it may be Nia, that if you're using. Um, no, it's actually it's actually five eighteen. I'm starting. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. It may be that um, the Fagel's edition you have has different line numbering. Okay. Yeah, but you know, because the English line numbers might not match up with the Greek ones. Right. Sorry. So I, you know, I um, I have Fagel's here on the Kindle, but it doesn't have any line numbers. No problem. All right. So here's what Achilles says. Poor man, how much you've borne, pain to break the spirit. What daring brought you down to the ships all alone to face the glance of the man who killed your sons, so many fine, brave boys? I, I just want to pause there and mention something that's going on in the Greek there. So Achilles is saying to him, in effect, how could you possibly come here and face the man who killed your own children? Now, the, the exact same line was used by Hecuba earlier. She said, you can't go to the ships. You can't go and see Achilles, you're crazy. How can you go and face the man who killed your own children? Exact same words. Everything is the same, except that when Achilles says them, of course, he puts the verb into the first person. You can't quite do that in the English. So he exactly repeats what Hecuba says. How could you bear to come here into the eyes, into the sight of, and then he effects, in effect says, of, of me, because I killed your children. And, it, and it's very, very powerful, just that tiny, tiny shift um, in, in what is otherwise the, a line quoted from, from what Hecuba said earlier. Uh, of course, it's a, a normal Homeric thing that he recycles lines. Right. right? It's part of being an oral poet that he standardly recycles lines, but sometimes he does it to really great effect like that. Right. All right, let's keep going. You must have a heart of iron. Come. Please sit down on this chair here. Let's put our griefs to rest in our own hearts. Rake them up no more, raw as we are with mourning. What, what good's to be won from tears that chill the spirit? So the immortals spun our lives that we, we wretched men, live on to bear such torments. Just in case that translation wasn't entirely clear, what he's saying there is, this is the life that the gods have assigned us mortals, right? They've assigned us lives of pain. That's, that's the life that the gods have given us, right? We wretched men, we live to bear such torments while the gods 
live free of sorrows. Their life is carefree. Our life is a life of suffering. There are two great jars that stand on the floor of Zeus's halls and hold his gifts. Our miseries one and the other blessings. When Zeus who loves the lightning mixes gifts, mixes gifts for a man, now he meets with misfortune and now good times in turn. Again, I, I'm just slightly worried that that wasn't entirely clear. So I'll just paraphrase it more prosaically. Zeus has two jars in his palace. One of them is full of bad stuff and one of them is full of good things. And sometimes he will give a person a mixture of the two jars. And when he does that, sometimes that person will meet with some misfortune and sometimes the things will be good for them. But when Zeus dispenses gifts from the jar of sorrows only, he makes a man an outcast, brutal, ravenous hunger, drives him down the face of the shining earth, stalking far and wide, cursed by gods and men. And then in what follows, he goes on to talk about how his own father Peleus exemplifies that he had lots of good fortune, but certain quite important kinds of misfortune as well. So that was the main bit of the passage I wanted us to look at. We can, of course, read some more, but perhaps we could talk about that. Well, that's, that's perfect. Why, why do you think Achilles goes into this almost philosophical discussion, a rather abstract discussion immediately after the outburst of emotion that precedes it. It seems like, uh, it seems like a jarring <laughs> uh, shift, not because it talks about jars, just because it's jarring. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, I mean, Homeric characters often make fairly general, fairly philosophical claims. And yet I feel here that dramatically it does work. Right. So um, I think I wasn't quite right or quite detailed enough when I set the scene before. Um, Priam has come in and he's made this request and he's reminded Achilles of his father. Uh, and then Achilles replies, I left something out. In between, they both weep. Right. So we, we left out that detail that in between, they both weep like for whatever it is, you know, minutes with Achilles weeping because he is suddenly sorry about his father who's been left behind. And also he's weeping over Patroclus. And meanwhile, this is where Priam gets his chance to weep, you know, for Hector, although he's been doing that for the last several days as well. So they both weep and then, so it's kind of important that Achilles is, as we were saying before, he's like somewhat sated now. He's coming a little bit out of his immediate sense of grief. You know how when someone can like rouse an emotion like that in you and, and you might get very angry or perhaps you get very upset and then, and then it, you know, it passes and you feel like it kind of leaves you, right? And you sort of return to normal. So we're already at a moment where Achilles is, you know, somewhat returning to normal. And in that context, he says, well, you know, this, this is just the way human life works, mm -hmm. right? I mean, our lives are full of, our lives are full of suffering, right? And, and then the two jar story, I think it's, it's a really beautifully constructed point. Yeah. You have to think about it a little bit to see what Plato, uh, sorry, not Plato, what Homer is saying. He's saying Zeus has two jars, bad stuff and good stuff. And here's how life works. You either get a mix or you just get the bad stuff. Now there's a conspicuous missing third option, which is that you might just get good stuff. That's not one of the options. Yeah. That's what Achilles is saying. He's saying you get a mix or, you know, which is the life most of us lead. Sometimes things go well. Sometimes things go horribly. They go horribly for all of us at some point. Or maybe they'll go horribly for you all the time. But that's it. Those are the two options for human life. And you and I exemplify that perfectly, he says, you know. Priam, you had a wonderful life. You were the king of Troy and the richest man in the whole North Aegean. And okay, now all your sons are dead. All right. So you had good and you had bad. And, uh, you know, my, my father's the same. 
he's you know wealthy and got to marry a goddess and and so on but he had there was something terrible about his life too which is that he couldn't have any children except one just me yeah. and now i'm gonna die and that's pretty awful you have one child and he dies young that's awful yeah. so he has his dollop of really awful misfortune too and so he exemplifies his point and i think that homer is right on the money there with that claim that those are the two kinds of human life the kind that go well some of the time or none of the time right that's it those are the only two kinds right now that sounds a bit bleak but i think it's fundamentally right and, and, and actually it's interesting because achilles is a sort of second and a half paradigm here because he has his own mixture of the jar but he knows in advance pretty much exactly what the mixture is going to be so his trade-off yeah. is that he's going to get a great deal of glory but yeah. he's going to die young and his mother knows it and is you know mourning it even as she's called to go send him the message uh earlier and he knows it and has sort of known it all along so he's in this sort of weird position that's different from Priam's, if you will, that he has the mix, but he knows exactly what the, what the, um, what the makeup of that mix is. And I think, I mean, part of what's so interesting about the, uh, the jars image, which I think, you know, as you were saying earlier, gets picked up uh, uh, in other texts also by Aristotle is, you know, even though you have this mix, you don't, it's not like the consistency of it stays the same throughout all your life. So you might think, shit, you know, I've had a pretty good mix. And then you're like, you know, you hit 78 and a bunch of, you know, <laughs> tragedies befalls you. And your whole interpretation looking backward on, you know, what kind of jars you've had changes, which is sort of what happens to Priam. So not only do you have the mix, you, you also never know until after you're dead what your mix actually was. Right, right. Exactly. You know, and of course, you could say that maybe we all know of some people whose lives seem to go kind of, you know, swimmingly well just the whole time. And yeah. they, they've managed to avoid all the major disasters of life. And yeah, that, maybe that happens too. Homer doesn't have to be kind of, he doesn't have to be exactly strictly correct about this right. for it to be an important approximate truth. Yeah. Human lives typically go well only some of the time or none of the time. And, you know, and that, that's actually quite an, it's a quite an important detail that there are plenty of human lives out there kind of blighted by misfortune just the whole time, right? It's kind of an important observation by Homer um, because we can, we can become very empathetic about that. We can, we can kind of turn away from you know, whole worlds of suffering, uh, almost unwilling to believe that there could be such a thing as like whole lives that 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 just carry on, marred in some way or other by some you know awful oppression or some terrible obstacle or something. But but those things are real. Hmm. Um, I was going to say as well though that, that, that there's a little detail in there. Um, I'll just read it again. It's towards the end of, end of the two-jar description, where he says, this, this is what happens if Zeus dispenses gifts to you just from the jars of sorrow. Ravenous hunger drives you over the face of the earth, and you're cursed by gods and men. I remember always thinking that there's something very powerful about the idea, something powerful and sort of shocking about the idea of being so, mis so misfortune, so misfortunate, unfortunate what's the right word there that uh, even the gods hate you right like the world itself has turned against you there's there's just no one on your side right and and if you think about it that's kind of a traditional human view that when things go really really horribly wrong we say why has god done this to me and there are various religions or philosophies that try to encourage us not to see the world that way you shouldn't think god has done this to you Right. That's not the way to think of it at all. You have to see things in a different way, see things in a different light, make the best of it, turn it. You know, try to find the good in it and so on and so forth. Homer's view is, no, you know what? Sometimes God hates you. <laughs> that's the right way to see it. 
Yeah. Right? Sometimes the world will just dump on you. And, yeah. and the right way of putting that is, yeah, even the gods have turned against you. It's, um, it's kind of dark. Yeah. And it's, exa it's exactly that bit of, it's exactly that bit of the passage that so irritated Plato. Um, which is why I was thinking we would talk yeah. about Plato's response to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you, you know, it's interesting about your comment that other religions have, you know, other traditions take this up uh, uh, as well. So the sort of one uh, obvious counterpart is the Job story, where the same kind of, you know, overwhelming misfortune is presented essentially as a test of faith or as a wager. Right. right. Uh, and, um, you know, there's almost an expectation from Job to bear it, and there's meaning in it. You know, right. Homer's, you know, it, it seems like Homer's view is there is a degree of bad luck that if you're subject to it, you're just screwed. There's no coming back from it. There's no meaning to it. There's no sort of, I mean, the other tradition is the more stoic one that you learn to distinguish between what's luck and what's up to you. And you, you know, find meaning in the way that you bear up to it. And, yeah. you know, well, I, think, you know I, I think there's a certain amount of common ground between all those positions. I mean, even Homer would probably say, yeah, this is the way life works. It, 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 it throws bad stuff at us all the yeah. time, right? But even he would probably say, and when that happens, you know, you've got to deal with it as best you can, right? There's a Homeric virtues as well of, you know, bearing things with a certain amount of dignity and, and pride and, and, and facing them bravely and so on, right? And that's kind of implied by the, by the Stoic view and by the, by the book of Job as well, right? The difference is that the Stoic view, and I think the Job view as well, is that you're somehow meant to hold on to the idea right. that in spite of all those misfortunes, everything is sort of for the best. Yeah. There's someone in charge who is making sure that it's all for the best. That's certainly the Stoic view. And the Homeric view is no, you don't have to hold on to the view that everything is for the best. Sometimes yeah. suffering is just meaningless suffering. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's the disagreement with Plato. And of course, with the Stoic, the disagreement with Plato is fundamentally, fundamentally identical to the disagreement with the Stoics on the same issue. Yeah. Whether so, that's also going on in the book of Job, I'm not sure, because I'm not as expert on that. Although you're absolutely right that it's um, that it's a very similar, yeah. it's a story poking at very similar ideas. By the way, before we get to Plato, since you just finished that translation of uh, the Nicomachean Ethics, am I, my intuition here is that Aristotle would probably agree or would like this a lot more, that there is a degree of bad luck that you just don't come don't get to come back from and some that's exactly right yeah i mean he he doesn't quite have the homeric or the tragic view the homeric view which is sort of is the tragic view and i mean the greek tragic view right although the just tragic view small t and greek tragic view are almost the same anyway but yeah. he doesn't quite have the homeric and tragic view that those kinds of external misfortunes are absolutely decisive right but he does think that under certain circumstances, they can be so extreme that everyone has to agree that they've kind of messed up your life. Yeah. Right? Or at least taken a lot away from it. In fact, I, I had a passage here that I was going to show you. I'll, I'll just read it because, yeah. you know, we're not doing it on screen. So this is in book one of the ethics where he's talking about this. And he says, okay, so on my understanding of what it is to, to flourish as a human being, I've said that you need to be able to exercise your virtues over a complete life, right? right? And then he adds that, that of course, that's going to be somewhat subject to misfortunes as well. He says, also, life is full of, life is full of reversals and strokes of fortune of every kind. And someone can be, can be thriving to the full, but then suffer terrible disasters in old age, like King Priam right. in the tales of the Trojan War. And when someone experiences that level of misfortune and meets a miserable end, nobody would still say that they flourished in life. Nobody would call them blessed. So that's him, you know, kind of agreeing with Homer, right? right? And he, he's even thinking about book 24, clearly. He's thinking about book 24 itself and saying, Prime is right to say his life has ended really, really badly, right? All his children have been killed in front of his eyes. Yeah. And he is meeting a miserable end, and that mars his life. 
even though it is external, it clearly mars his life, right? And that, so that would be a major point of disagreement between Aristotle and Plato, and Plato on the issue of how much those kind of external um, events affect the quality of our lives. Right. So what, what does Plato make about the jar story? Okay, so Plato actually quotes the jar story. So in book two of the Republic, when he's, uh, when he's explaining, he's describing an ideal state in his view. And as part of that, he's stipulated that it's going to have these like philosopher rulers. And then as part of that, he starts talking about how his philosopher rulers are going to be educated. And as part of that, he says, we're going to have to make sure they get the right kind of poetry right from the start so that their characters are molded in the right way. Now, I always feel that all of that background and context can kind of be stripped away because it really just amounts to Plato saying, here in my view are the correct views that should be being put forward in our literature. And none of the rest really matters. It's just, it's just him saying, these are the correct views, right? These are the correct metaphysical views or the, or the right views about the world. And in the middle of that, he says, he starts saying, we're gonna to have to delete bits of Homer because Homer often has like the wrong view. And he, he quotes the two jar section and says, we're gonna to have to delete that bit because it's so stupid. He says this, we can't allow Homer or any other poet to make such a stupid mistake about the gods. Like when he says that Zeus has two jars on the floor of his palace full of fates, good in one and evil in the other, and that the person to whom Zeus allots a mixture has varying fortunes, sometimes good and sometimes bad, while the person who just gets the unmixed evils is chased by hunger across the earth. He quotes the whole passage from memory, mind you, and says, this is so stupid, we have to delete it, right? We have to delete it from my text of Homer in my perfect republic, because people cannot be told something as absurd as that the gods themselves give people suffering and put terrible things into our lives. For him, that's an unacceptable view, a philosophically unacceptable view. Um, what makes it unacceptable? So that's a really good question. Now, when you talk to Platonists, and I, you know, I'm, I don't mean actual, you know, dedicated followers of Plato, I just mean ancient philosophers who professionally work on Plato, although those two things are not so different. Um, they'll typically say, oh, you know, th this, is, this is just about censorship and Plato has ideas about censorship that, you know, up to some point we can all agree with. You know, there are things that, there are things we can all agree there are certain things that shouldn't be in films and so on. People tend to go very easy on Plato on this issue. My feeling is that his claim that that these bits of Homer, that bit of Homer, and, and, and then he quotes other various bits that are also absolutely wonderful and powerful, that his claim that those things should be deleted is really rather strange and needs to be looked at closely. So what is going on there? So I've, I've said earlier that Homer's putting forward this view that this is fundamentally how life works. Either your life will go well some of the time and it will go badly some of the time through no fault of your own, or it will go badly all of the time, again, through no fault of your own. This is a matter of like just what the world tends to throw at us, right? Plato hates that idea. He hates the idea that we live in that kind of unfair world. It's an unfair world if you face terrible suffering through no fault of your own. He hates the idea of pointless suffering or, or undeserved suffering. Now he claims, he claims in the Republic that the reason those lines will have to be deleted is because they morally corrupt us. Now, I think technically the argument is something like this. If you have poems in which gods behave badly, right, then you're gonna give people license to behave badly in the same way. So if Zeus is like being mean to people and doing them harm, for no good reason, then that will give people license to be mean to each other and do each other harm. The argument is something like that, but I don't think it's really a good faith argument. I think that really what Plato is objecting to is just the worldview 
that the Homeric lines express. And somewhere deep inside, he feels that that's a worldview that he finds unacceptable. He's deeply committed to the idea that the world is fundamentally fair. The world is fundamentally just. And so the Homeric view is one he can't accept. The argument about it being morally corrupting, I think is, well, all right, let me be more charitable. I said, but, I don't think it's a really a good faith just, argument. Let me just push you on that. If it's just the world, if it's just the worldview that he objects to, then why censor it, which is a political act? Well, he objects to the worldview and he strongly doesn't want anyone else to be exposed to that worldview. It's a little bit like the way now you could imagine some people saying, I, say, I hate the view that we live in a world that has no God. Okay. So, and, and, and let's say that there's nothing beyond that kind of deep impulse just in itself. It's like, a, like a, an impulse about, like a deep commitment to what sort of universe we're living in. I hate atheism. I hate the idea that this universe doesn't have a kind of governance to it. And then you might add to that, and I don't want my children reading stuff that puts forward that view. I don't want anyone reading stuff that puts forward that view. I want those books banned. That's not only imaginable, that's not, you know, that's not hypothetical. That's actually the sort of thing people actually say in today's world, even in the US, but also perhaps more so in other parts of the world where, where you know, what you might call metaphysical censorship yeah. is still, still a, you know, a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's what's going on with Plato. And, and then I think the argument about moral corruption is one, okay, so I've said maybe it's not really a good faith argument. More charitably, it's at least not at all plausible, right? And, and that I think is quite important. What I mean is this, I think if you properly pitted Homer against Plato on this, Homer could say, you know, like, what are you talking about? Why on earth would you think my two jars claim is morally corrupting? I mean, it's absurd to say people are gonna start imitating Zeus and like doling out harm. That's just ridiculous. That's just not how our religion works. I mean, we have a God of war, right? Who like goes around killing everyone. That doesn't mean we're saying murder is good. It's just, we're saying war does that. And everyone knows that. Right? Everyone understands that's how the God of war works. And when I say Zeus doles out suffering, I'm saying that's what life is like, right? And it's, you can have the, the thought that that's what life is like without being morally corrupted by it. In fact, here Homer could go on the offensive. In fact, it's a morally uplifting thought. It's a morally enriching thought. What happens to Achilles and Priam is that they have a moment of insight, right? They both understand this is the way human life works. It, where everyone suffers, even my enemies, even Priam suffers in what, maybe I haven't seen this before because I've just been killing Trojans outside the walls. Now I see these people suffer just like the way I do. And, and Priam can say, yeah, you know, this is Achilles. I hate this guy. He killed my children. I hate him. My wife was just saying a moment ago, she wants to eat his liver, but yeah. you know what? He suffers too. Even, yeah, even he, yeah, he's upset about Patroclus and his father is kind of like me. And yeah, our situations are in fact, in some ways similar. So Homer could say, this is actually morally important. It's morally important to recognize our shared humanity around that kind of key insight that we all suffer in similar ways. That's why I think Plato's claim yeah. that there's something morally corrupting about the two jars is, is very implausible. Yeah. So implausible that I don't think he believes it. Yeah. I mean, is there is there another option though, where for every Achilles and Priam who can have a moment of insight from this, uh, there may be many more who would become cynical and despondent and harder to politically control once they realize that there's no relationship between what you do and what you get in life. And that it's not so much that you're worried and anxious that this will be a bad example, but that you're worried that a population that believes in this, if they don't have the moral imagination of an Achilles or a Priam become more difficult to um, subdue and control. Yeah, so, so I think that is Plato's worry. He is worried about a certain kind of cynicism 
And I've heard people say similar things today. You know, I was comparing Plato's move with people who say, I hate the kind of materialist, physicalist, atheist view. It's depressing. It will lead us to nihilism. It will lead us to cynicism. I don't think any of those claims are plausible, just like I don't think Plato's claims are plausible. Um, and here's why. Even if you have the view that lots of suffering is undeserved, it doesn't really follow that how you act doesn't matter. Of course, how you act matters, right? There's a huge domain of life where the way we act has an enormous bearing on how our lives go. And that's the human domain. In the human domain, how you treat the people around you, the people you love, or just the people you interact with, your fellow citizens, everyone, everyone you, you interact with, how you treat those people has an enormous bearing on how well your life goes. It's just that there's also that other stuff. There's also that Homeric stuff. There's earthquakes, there's cancer, there's sudden car accidents, there's, there's horrible poverty that nobody predicted and just happened and, and all of that. And it, that's really important too. And Homer is saying, yeah, there's a lot of that stuff. And we need to recognize that everyone is subject to it. And there's death, you know, and there's that experience of a parent losing a child or a, or a child, um, you know, losing a parent. And we all go through one or other of those at some point. And that doesn't change the fact that how you are as a person, how you act, how you treat people has an enormous contribution to how well your life goes, which is a kind of key Platonic idea and a key Socratic idea and an Aristotelian idea too. It's just that I, I prefer the Aristotelian version of that, which is that yes, it has an enormous bearing on how well your life goes, but it's not the only thing that right. has a bearing on how your life goes. Although I do think that we left, Adam, one feature of this out of the original uh, account uh, in uh, Homer, which is not only do uh, people sort of not necessarily get the fate that they deserve, maybe part of what is so disturbing to Plato about this is it's clear from the text that Zeus himself does not have a plan. He couldn't care less. Yeah, right? That's the part of it that we skipped over. Not only does he uh, mix the two jars in a way that the people don't understand once they're subjected to it. He himself is not thinking about how he mixes the two jars, right? He, he That's right. It yeah. seems to be thoughtless. Um, that's exactly right. Yeah. So that's why Homer is the father of Greek humanism. Yeah. Because, you know, he, his world is populated with gods, but he constantly conveys the idea that those gods, they don't give a damn, right? Yeah. They right. just don't care about human life. And that's kind of his way of saying, that's his way of expressing what became a quite important idea, in, you know, in the Greek, the Greek enlightenment, the Greek explosion, that we live in a world that isn't governed benevolent, benevolently by, by human-like higher powers. You know, if we, if we want fairness, it's gonna just have to be, it's just gonna have to be in our human world. Right. The world itself is not going to treat us fairly. Right. right? The world is just like a, a, a God who doesn't really care about stuff, dishing stuff out in this way, right. you know, to people who deserve it and people who don't. That's what the that's what the wider world is like. As for our world, well, you know, let's try to make that world as fair as we can. Yeah. But then Plato. Um, but then Plato, I, Plato, I, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Well, I was just going to say, I think that's absolutely right. But then at least politically, from a cynical uh, point of view, Plato has a point. Not everybody, uh, there, there's, that's politically explosive. Um, that view is politically explosive, politically dangerous. It suggests, for example, that if you, Adam, are the philosopher king, your view of the good is not in some inherent way better than my view of the good, because there can only be a human view of the good. Uh, and, uh, you know, once I realize that my grounds for obedience to you are shaky, so maybe I shouldn't be allowed to realize it. Yeah, so, so you're saying, don't you need that idea of a kind of higher transcendent basis for right and wrong, you know, even for 
political authority. I didn't think that that was implied by what I was saying. I think we could take the view that, you know, fairness is just a feature of our human world and take the view that some human opinions about it are much better than others, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, by, I mean that's and the whole some, question of grounding by virtue of right, that. Right, okay, yeah. Well, then we would start exploring what are the basis for our, you know, for our moral and political claims. It's just that we would say, you know, that there's a whole but range it, of options there. It's just that God isn't going to be one of them. But right? it, is that Plato's concern, though, that taking this Homeric view does a number on authority? I think so. Well, I think his, not a, not a lot of Plato scholars don't agree with me about this, but my view is that he ties metaphysics to morality, right? So yes, authority is an aspect of that, but more simply, he feels that the Homeric view and the tragic view undermines our sense of right and wrong, right? Um, that's what he's worried about. He thinks that views like that lead to amoralism, or rather, I would put it more like this. He likes to claim they lead to amoralism, perhaps as a way of making them look less you know, look as unattractive as possible. I'm not sure he really, really believes they lead to amoralism. Like I said before, I think it's the worldview itself that he takes offense at. And then, you know, sometimes we, we just take an offense at a particular philosophical view, and then we look for bad possible consequences of that view as a way of arguing it against it. I think Plato does a lot of that. I think he fundamentally dislikes that worldview. And then he's, he constructs supposed consequences of it as, as a way of arguing against it. And one of those claims is it morally corrupts us. It leads us to amoralism, which I think is not particularly plausible and may not even be something he's deeply committed to. Um, yeah. His, yeah real so commitment, his real commitment is, is, is for some reason to the wrongness of the worldview itself. Hmm. You get a similar phenomenon in the modern debate. You will hear some people say, uh, you know, if atheism takes hold, no one will care about doing the right thing anymore. That's not remotely plausible. Not, not even remotely, but people say it, right? And I think what's going on there is that it's atheism per se that they hate. And, and they construct an argument about its supposed awful consequences, which is not particularly plausible and perhaps not something they very strongly believe. But it's one way of getting people to worry about atheism. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're wandering off topic a bit here, but I mean, that, that's a very spec, that's a kind of yeah. line of thought I've been experimenting with recently, I, I, and I don't stand by it particularly strongly. We've certainly wandered a, lot, a long way from the two jars. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's get back to our jars, although I, I, I am struck by sort of this early, very early version of uh, cancel culture that Plato is willing to. <laughs> yeah, I've always thought that passage in the Republic is really extraordinary and doesn't get it. It doesn't get the attention it deserves. So people, the thing is that to give it the attention it deserves would be to say, this is really strange. Like what Plato is doing is, is strange and objectionable. And, and Plato scholars are just very reluctant to say that kind of thing. So they tend to just skip over it and say, oh, well, you know, there's just censorship. Of course, we, we, we all have to agree with this claim that we have oh. to take care over what kind of things our children read. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and as far as it goes, that, that's fairly anodyne. But when what you're actually saying is we have to delete all the best lines from Homer, something else is going on. Like there's something more interesting going on there yeah. uh, that I think people should look at more. Yeah. I have I have a question for you about the you know you know beginning continuing to uh, spin out the implications of the jars metaphor. I mean, so as you're saying, some of the uh, uh, result of the uh, two jars insight is that these two arch enemies realize that they're a lot like each other. Yeah, that you know that. Uh, um, sets up the that that set, sets up the ground sets up the possibility for the the truce that they strike right uh, priam says give us 12 days that's what it will take uh, uh to uh, uh get hector back and uh, uh bury him uh, yeah. um, mark the burial and uh then there's this there's this line there that i absolutely uh, love he says on the 11th day we'll build the barrel high above his body and on the 12th we fight again if fight we must. 
Right. Uh, you know, that's a very sort of interesting, significant pause there. He says on the 12th day, you know, we have time to fight again. On the 12th, we'll fight again. If, if fight, we must. And he sort of introduces the possibility that, you know, especially now that they've realized how similar they are to each other, maybe they don't have to. I have to tell you, for me, this the, these passages like uh, they resonate a little bit with the World One World War One Christmas truce kind of right. thing. Of, right. you know, the, yeah, it is. A, it, it is quite similar to that. That's right. The Germans yeah. and the English realizing that they're much more like each other than yeah. They both like soccer. Yeah. <laughs> well, not only do they both like soccer, but no, they, no, no. I, I'm being flippant. Yes, oh. it's a, it was a similar moment. Yeah. Yeah. No. Oh. Um, that's right. So I think the other aspect of this, besides the kind of metaphysical argument with, with Plato, I think the other aspect of this is the way that Homer is touching upon themes of reconciliation and forgiveness and so on. And I know that you work on that enormous amount. And so the passage must resonate for you, you know, in part because of the way it touches on that kind of thing. And um, yeah, that's another aspect of this that I've always found interesting. When I was taught it, um, as an undergraduate, I remember quite distinctly being told by my tutor, a very good tutor called Oliver Lyne, um, that it's very important not to think that anything, any sort of forgiveness is going on here. You mustn't think that Achilles is momentarily kind of forgiving the King of Troy in spite of all the Trojans have done to him. And you certainly mustn't think that Priam is in any sense forgiving Achilles for killing Hector. Why? Well, because forgiveness actually just isn't a Greek thing. Right. The Greeks don't have the concept of forgiveness. Yeah. They don't have the operation of forgiveness. That's, you know, a culturally later development. It's fundamentally tied to Christian ideas of forgiveness and so on. I think at the time I was skeptical about that, but at the same time didn't have a well-formulated objection. Subsequently, I've come to feel that I deeply disagree with that whole scholarly fashion. The fashion being for insisting that the Greeks are kind of fundamentally different from us uh, with respect to a whole range of kind of key ethical concepts of which forgiveness is one. Now, I'd be happy to agree that, you know, this is just a kind of moment of common humanity and it's not quite a reconciliation, like you've just pointed out, they're gonna go back to fighting again oh, soon. And so it's not quite forgiveness just for that rather ordinary uh, fact, right? But the idea that the Greeks don't have the idea of forgiveness, yeah. that I now think is completely absurd. Yeah. And I've, I've, compl I've very much moved away from my own training. Yeah. I was constantly told to see the Greeks as like different because earlier, because they had different culture and, and culture is what determines these things. These days I'm much more influenced by, uh, by evolutionary thinking, by evolutionary psychology. And, I, and, and I'm impressed by accounts that I've read of, of the role that forgiveness plays in, you know, in restoring cooperative relationships. And that that role implies that this is something that's probably been really important to human beings for about as long as we've been human at all. Yeah. Friendships are a deeply human thing, that friendships sometimes break down, that we sometimes fight with the people that we need to be cooperating with. And forgiveness has a very, very important role to play. Apology and forgiveness have a very important role to play in restoring those relationships. And that's something human. It's not something Christian. It's something Jesus talks about, sure but it's not something Jesus invented. Yeah. It is something human. So I've now I've very much moved away from my own training. And I remember at the time thinking, I like this passage because there's this kind of gentleness to it. These people who were fighting and killing each other are, are, are sharing a moment of, of kindness and of sympathy. And that reminds me, yes, it reminds me of stuff about forgiveness that I've read elsewhere. And I was told, no, don't think that way. <laughs> and now I feel, sorry, I'm going to think that way. I think I was right all along, right? I'm, I'm not going with the mid-20th century fashion for, for progressivism. Yeah. Um, I think there are insights into the nature of human reconciliation here. Yeah. I also think that's something Aristotle also picks up on. Mm -hmm. There's a passage in Book 5 of the Ethics where he talks about a virtue in Greek called epiakeia. 
which means something like kindness or forbearance. And, and he explains that, he explains that if you really want to do the right thing, the morally right thing, it's not enough just to stick to what you're kind of strictly entitled to. It's not enough to just demand exactly what you have a right to. It's not enough as it were, just to rigidly stick to the rules. You have to be able to bend a bit. You have to be able to like flex a bit in the favor of the people that you're interacting with. You have to show a bit of kindness, right? Yeah. Even if you just want to be conscientious, even if you just want to always do the right thing, you have to kind of temper that with this tendency to slightly over favor the people you know, that, that you're dealing with. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that thought on Aristotle's part is influenced by, you know, maybe not directly influenced by Book 24, but it's influenced by this kind of thing. I wouldn't be surprised if he actually wasn't thinking that, yes, Achilles in Book 24 is precisely an example of Epiakeia. Achilles doesn't have to give the body back, right? He's not obliged to. As a powerful person, he's not required to. You could even argue it's not even necessarily, you know, his obligation in any sense. But yeah. he does. He bends. He flexes. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, the, the, sorry. Go on. I guess the one sort of question I have on that uh, is that both Achilles and Priam uh, are put on notice by the gods in the beginning of the book and are they told, are. Right, yeah. you sort yeah. of, you know, Achilles, you went too far. Priam, you can go, you'll get this, you're not going to die. I would say Achilles actually does have to give the body back. What he doesn't have to do is to empathize with Priam. What he okay. doesn't. Yeah, maybe that's right. And maybe I would agree with that. Although I, I would be inclined to say this. You can't always assume when gods appear in, in the Iliad and tell people to do stuff, you can't always assume that Homer's really trying to imply that this puts the person under a different kind of obligation than they would have if they just thought about it. Because I think sometimes what he does is he engineers encounters between human beings and gods as a way of talking about our own reflections. Yeah. So for example, when, when, when the goddess, which one is it? Iris, I think. When Iris comes down and says to Prime, go, go and get the body back. One way of understanding that is, yeah, Homer's talking about that moment when Prime said, I should go and get the body back. Like, and that's really all he's talking about, right? He's talking about that moment where he thought, yeah, that's what I should do. Now, it, okay, it's true, it's true. I'm not saying Homer has like thought this through and has clearly defined ideas about exactly what real world scenario he's talking about. Yeah, there are gods in his stories and yes, they do change things a bit sometimes. But I still think it's kind of okay just to say, well, this is the story. Priam decides he should go and get Hector's body back. He thinks it's going to be a. He thinks it's going to work. Yeah. And Achilles relents and decides to agree. And he just, you know, he feels that's the right thing to do. And yeah, Homer's way of telling that is to have gods come down and say, yeah, this is this is what you should do. You should do that, right? Yeah. I think sometimes he uses gods to represent our own voices. You know. Yeah. Um, our own deliberations, which do sometimes feel as if they come from outside us yeah yeah no, that's that's really that's really great um i think we're uh reaching the the end of uh the end of the uh allotted time and uh you know i know that um we've been talking for a while this this has been this has been really great and reminded me why why i love this book so much and also why I love talking to you so much. So thank you. Well, thanks a lot. I uh, I, I love talking about Homer as well. Um, sometimes I wish I did more work on Homer. I always talk about that passage at great length um, whenever I teach the Republic, when we're looking at Plato saying, <laughs> saying that it has to be deleted. Yeah. I mean, I really wish people would do more work on that. It's funny to think of what exactly he thought what kind of Iliad you would have if you actually took out all the passages that he wants yeah. to have removed. And it's not just, you know, 10 passages. It's him saying any passage like this. In the end, it would be the whole Iliad. It would be almost all of it, right? Yeah. Um, 
he also says that you're not allowed to have bits where Homer is like playing a character. You know, yeah. actually speaking, you have to take those bits out well as well, or put it all back into the third person. Also for similar, <laughs> really crazy. Yeah. Sorry. Also for similar didactic kind of reasons, you don't want the yeah. culture of imitators and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Too but emotional. Yeah. Well, yeah. I should say in Plato's defense that I think part of this is like very, you know, he protests too much. Yeah. Yeah. By which cool. I mean, part of this is because he, he really loves Homer. Right. 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 And he picks all the, all the best passages because he knows they're the best passages. He's <laughs> like a very, very astute critic and you can't be a good, you can't be a good reader of Homer without liking it. You know, without, you can't recognize those wonderful passages without having a certain kind of love for them. That's also why he quotes them from memory. Like he says, he doesn't want anyone reading Homer. He's got most of Homer in his own head. It's very unfair. <laughs> yeah, I'm allowed, but you're not. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna keep reading the Iliad because I love it, but I'm smart enough to not let it affect me. You know, it's a, he should stop at the, I'm gonna keep reading it because I love it. You should just stop there, right? <laughs> Yeah. And then he has it, you know, an unobjectionable claim. Yeah. All right, Adam. Thanks. All again. right. Well, th thanks a lot, Neil. That was a lot of fun. Okay. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu/ethics.